Thank you so much to the Fleming family and Lisa Tool on the piano earlier. The wonders of that song. I think it's important for us to have understanding. There was one little, little word there, or rather not little, but a long word there on the last phrase, the last slide. Did you see it there? The Ebenezer's God gives us. The word Ebenezer means help. The little helps that God gives us is what that was referring to. The Ebenezer's God's help. He helps us. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'd like to begin by just reading an extended passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 down through the end of chapter 4, because this entire section is one cohesive unit. And this morning we'll be looking at chapter 4 and verses 15 through 19 as Peter comes to the climax, the conclusion of this section. But I think it behooves us and is important for us to read the entire section so that we can set it in context. It's fascinating at how it all ties together. Little nuances, little pieces of it, but it all is tied together. Before we read the whole passage, though, I'd like to read the section that we're going to look at specifically this morning, and then we'll go back and read it in context. So the section we're going to look at specifically this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 15 through 19. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody, in other men's matters. Yea, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not? the gospel of God. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Now follow with me back to the beginning of this section. In chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them, that do evil. And who is he that will harm you 
if ye be followers of that which is good. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation way of life in Christ." For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, Access of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick, living, and the dead. For, for this cause was the gospel preached unto them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God.
If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Our great God and faithful creator, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this scripture you have inspired and preserved for us this day so that we can learn thereby. Lord, as we've looked at the topic of suffering, as we've seen how this ought to motivate us, help us now to consider, as you have declared here, that it is time it is time that judgment begin in the house of God, that we as your people, your spiritual house built up, must examine ourselves, must consider our way of life, our conversation, must consider what we do and how our conscience stands before you. So that if and when persecution comes, we might stand strong, not only in our faith, but as a witness for you. And so, Father, guide us and teach us and help us to learn and to apply the truths here from this passage in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. Here in this passage, we've seen persecution. Last two weeks, we looked at how it's Brother Fleming also reiterated it in the psalm before he sang. It's not something strange, for here it is if and when. It's not really what it is if and when, it's um, when. The fiery trial comes. 
there's suffering. So how ought this to motivate us? Well, in context of this whole passage, you may notice that there's a lot about our conversation, about our way of life, about us doing the will of God. And here now it's coming to this point of suffering, and as he's just finished admonishing the believers to not think it's strange, but to rejoice in the midst of suffering, he pauses for a moment and addresses an aspect that's very real. That is, for what or for whom are we suffering? Look with me at verse 15. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. In my Bible, if I look across the column to this next section in the earlier part of the chapter, we find out that we once, particularly writing to the audience here, were people who would, who would do the will of the Gentiles. And Gentiles here technically means non-Jews, but very specifically means those who live without the consciousness of the true God and His law. Live wickedly. And there are talked about the lasciviousness, the living of life, of sensuality and immorality, of lusts, desires, and passions, of the excesses of wines, of the revelings, of the banquetings, of the abominable idolatries. And the appeal here is that this is, we should no longer walk in these. The theme continues through all of this, that rather we are supposed to be living and doing the will of God. And that's sometimes hard, and the reason why he comes back to it is, is because sometimes when we suffer, we struggle with the aspect of suffering while doing the will of God. But sometimes, did you know, we suffer because of the consequences of our sin, for the consequences of our sin. And sometimes we may suffer greater consequences for our sins because the godless world around us sees us as we now declare our faith in Christ and they now hold us to a higher standard. And so, the admonition or the motivation that that results for us is a motivation to live according to the will of God, to stay far away. Wait, you might say, well, these things don't sound like a Christian, and you're exactly right. They don't. That's why Paul, in other places, goes through a list of things and sins, and he says, let them not be once named among you. Just because we have the grace of God, because His grace has been poured out upon us and we've received forgiveness, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. No, we don't continue in sin that grace may abound. And when it comes to the issue of suffering, it's even more important. For when we find these people here, you see here back in, again to verse Four of chapter 4, these evils that the Gentiles walk in, it now says, wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. 
Here now, you have forsaken those things, and you just don't seem that you can win. You forsake them, and then they cause trouble for you, speaking evil of you, because you don't run with them the way they run, the way they run and the way you used to run. Instead, we are seeking to serve God. And in seeking to serve God, we may suffer for it. That's why there was so much admonition here given in chapter 3 and verse 8 about being of one mind, about not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but blessing, knowing we have an inheritance, seeing that we need to love life in good days. We refrain our, we speak the truth. We refrain our lips, our tongues from evil and our lips from guile. We eschew evil. We seek good. We seek peace. We ensue it, knowing that the Lord is the righteous judge. And even as we are seeking to fulfill the will of God, think it not strange that you'll be suffering or persecuting for this. Think it not strange that you'll find yourself shackled up to the most despicable criminals of society. And Peter is writing, saying, Beware in how you live that when you find yourself suffering, it's for righteousness and not unrighteousness. He's appealing to the church to take heed, wake up, pay attention, be sober, beware and careful of how you live. Especially in a society in a time in which there is suffering for righteousness' sake. He follows it with the encouragement that if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. That's the reason why Paul and Silas and Philippi, though they were bound in the innermost prison in the stocks, could sing at midnight. They could give glory to God because they were not in there for any crimes that they had committed. And they could glorify God in it. In fact, as we look throughout history, we find illustrations of this in many different places. If we go way back to the book of Genesis, way back to the book of Genesis, turn with me there, the book of Genesis in chapter 39. In chapter 38, we find one of Jacob's sons, Judah, walking in lasciviousness, running with a friend who sets him up with a woman who had attired herself as an harlot not a good situation. Here you might say, this isn't the church age, but you might say, time for judgment to begin in the house of Jacob. For Judah to realize this is wrong. Instead, he had a friend he was running with to the same excess of riot who led him right into this gross immorality. But then we turn the page to chapter 39 and we find Joseph who had been hated by his brethren, sold into slavery, had every excuse to be bitter, but yet he faithfully worked and served as a slave in Egypt, gaining the respect of his master, his owner, Potiphar. Ah, catching the eye of Potiphar's wife, who sought day after day after day to tempt him into immorality, and he resisted. 
he refused. In fact, he began to avoid her altogether. You see, judgment began in his heart. He had a fear of God in his heart. Even though he didn't have First Peter, like we do, he understood the truths of First Peter. And he was able to apply them in his life in the midst of temptation. And what did it get him? One day, she intently went to trap him, so much so that he had to leave, leaving his coat behind as he fled from her presence. And what did she do? Well, interesting. Peter kind of describes it. For um, she was one who spoke evil of him. She switched it around as she reported to her husband basically describing that Joseph had done what she was doing. You see how that happens? And so first Peter chapter 3 and verse 17, Peter wrote, For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Joseph could have yielded to those temptations and enjoyed the pleasures of sin for a season. You might say that, in, that he could have um, continued in the will of the Gentiles, which might have sufficed him, but it wouldn't. He could have walked in lasciviousness and lusts. He could have done it. But no judgment began in his heart. For how did he respond to her? How did he respond to her? In Genesis 39, in verse 9, he replied, saying, There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he, your husband, kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. Now look at this next phrase. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to him day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And then the day came when he was alone in the house, and she was, and she made her move on him. But he fled and left. And she lied to her husband about what was going on. Do you know what happened to Joseph? Look at verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. Joseph suffered for righteousness' sake. He considered the truth of what's in First Peter. Here, this is, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, in an Old Testament sense, in an individual sense, this was real for Joseph. He knew what was right. But in the end, see again in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And that is exactly what Joseph did. For if we look back at Genesis chapter 39, we find in verse 21, here he is in prison, but... The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
and we don't have time to tell the rest of the story. But Joseph was a man who throughout his life demonstrated an integrity, an integrity that he suffered for. Sometimes in Christian circles, we have an integrity crisis. Do we, when no one's around, have integrity? Do we do the will of God as we meditate upon things in life, as we do things when no one sees, when our friends are pressuring us? Does judgment begin in our hearts? We as a church, we, the house of God, the, His spiritual house, are we serious about doing the will of God and not doing the will of the Gentiles? What's a travesty here in America is that we have religious freedom in the sense that for the most part, we don't suffer for doing right and we don't suffer for our witness. But the travesty is how many times those who bear the name Christian blaspheme the scriptures, blaspheme the Lord in their conduct that actually results in them suffering, but suffering rightly so for doing not the will of God. You see, this is one of the reasons why persecution is so real and why in so many societies and times and places when there has been persecution that is spoken of as refining the church. Why would you be doing things that get yourself thrown into prison if you're doing things that are righteous and it gets you thrown into prison? And Peter's writing, if you're suffering, don't be suffering as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, broad or generic, or even as a busybody in other men's matters. You know, you might hear people use as a rationale being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, I understand that sometimes that may be true, innocently so. But very frequently, those who are in the wrong place at the wrong time should never have been there because they were playing with those who run in excess, being described here. Be aware of that. This, this description here is saying, we as Christians, we're Christians. So if we're suffering, we're suffering for righteousness. And let no man be suffering as a murderer. You say, well, that's not me. How sad it is when there are Christians who are murderers. Don't be suffering as a thief. Oh, how sad it is when Christians are thieves. Sometimes when they steal something, and then it's like, oh, well, pray for me. I'm just in a bad place, and it's really, I'm suffering. It's hard to pray for them, isn't it, sometimes? Because they deserve it. They deserve to suffer for stealing. So Paul, Peter's writing saying, don't steal, so you don't suffer for it. Or as an evildoer, very general of regarding evil, and then very broad, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Oh, that just includes a whole boatload of things. We need to be separate from these things and far away from them. Rather, though, when we are, very likely we will be spoken evil of, as it says over in verse 4. 
Let me tell you about another guy. You remember King David, right? King David committed a horrific crime in adultery, or worse, depending on how you look at it. And in 2 Samuel, when Nathan confronted him, he said to him that you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Here's a reason why we must, judgment must begin in the house of the Lord is because when it doesn't and we find ourselves committing and doing evil or meddling in other men's business or stealing or murdering, we give occasion for people to blaspheme, as was the case with David. But let's look at another example from history. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 had a similar life to Joseph in the sense that just as Joseph as a young man was sold into slavery, so Daniel was carried away captive into a foreign land. It's interesting that these two positive examples had suffering that was absolutely nothing to do with anything they had done wrong. Which, again, here's the reason why many look at suffering as a preparing for their bigger tests. In spite of all of that, we find Daniel rising in influence, rising in power next to the king. Kind of like Joseph, by the way. Suffering refined this man. To the point where he, in chapter 6, after being the right-hand man for repeated kingdoms, now comes to the kingdom of Darius, and Darius set him well, we read Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdoms 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give an account unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Here we have a man carried away as a youth, as a captive, suffering in that way. Could you imagine being pulled away from your family, your home, your community, carried to a foreign land, given a pagan name, and then trained in the ways of the Babylonians? But yet now as time has gone by, he has risen in influence to the point where now the new king is determined to set him over everything so he can kind of like check out. <laughs> That's really what's going on here. He wants to enjoy being king. And so he's going to put Daniel in charge of everything. And so, you know what the plan is? The king had this plan, but everybody else didn't like it. Oh, no, they didn't like it. They wanted to be number one. And they didn't want to submit to Daniel as number one. And so you know what they started to do? They started to watch Daniel. Did I say David? Daniel. Started to watch Daniel. And you know what their strategy was? We're going to catch that Daniel doing something wrong. We're going to catch that Daniel doing something wrong so we can take him down. 
and tell you something? If you carry the name Christian, there are people, even in a pluralistic society in such as which we live, will want to take you down. And they're going to watch you. And they're going to pick away at everything you do. That's what they did to Daniel. They were watching him, and they were watching him. You know what? They wanted to find something to grab a hold of to pull him down. That's one of the reasons why one of the qualifications for a pastor bishop in Timothy and Titus is said that he'd be above reproach, literally meaning he have no handles, nothing that they can grab and yank him down with. That's what they're looking for with Daniel. Oh, they're just looking, they're watching, they're watching, they're watching. What can we trap them in? What can we get them in? Daniel 6, 4. Then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion or fault. They couldn't find anything. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. This is a, what Peter is talking about is what needs to be in us. Now, does this mean that we're sinless and perfect and don't make mistakes? No. That won't be the case till we're in glory. But that's why the appeal is this. Let judgment begin in the house of God. Start living life intentionally and real and understanding this. Don't just go along with the culture or the society or the perspectives. Pay attention. Wake up. That's why the aspect is they've been given in Peter. Wake up. It's been said there. And be sober. Have understanding. There are those who are looking to do just this, and they're looking to do it in some cases for no other reason than the fact that you call yourself a Christian. What happened with Daniel? Verse 5. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. <laughs> Isn't that the way it's worked throughout the centuries? When you, there's nothing legitimate, make it up. And it's extra powerful when you make it up regarding what somebody ought to be doing. You know the history, I hope. They decide to go to the king and trick the king into passing a law that no man can make any petition to anyone other than the king for 30 days because they know that three times a day Daniel publicly prays. The king was tricked. He signed the law. And guess what? Daniel heard the law. And just as was his custom every day, he opened those windows towards Jerusalem and publicly before all the street prayed, committing his soul to the faithful creator. Just as what's described here in 1 Peter. He wasn't afraid of their terrors. He was doing the will of God. Last verse of chapter 4. Committing the keeping of his soul to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Judgment began in his heart. Do we? 
I hope you know the story, the history of Daniel. He was reported to the king, and the king realized his mistake. But there was nothing he could do about it because he wasn't supreme king like Nebuchadnezzar was. He was bound by the laws of the Medes and Persians, and he couldn't change a decree. So Daniel was taken, and he was cast into a den of lions, there to suffer, not as a murderer, not as a thief, not as an evildoer, not as a busy matter, man in other men's business, but as one who was a praying man. You know the account, I hope. The lions didn't eat him, for God sent an angel to that den of lions and closed those lions' mouths, and he was delivered from those lions. And then the king issued a decree to all those who had tricked him that they be cast into the den of lions. And guess what happened to them? They never even reached the bottom. The lions devoured them. Daniel was one who suffered reproach. He suffered those speaking evil of him, those falsely accusing his good conversation, as is described in 1 Peter 3, verse 16, as one having a good conscience did the will of God. And suffered for the will of God. Let me bring you to another example. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 24. You know Paul, right? Paul was the missionary. Paul had made three missionary journeys. And on his way home from that third missionary journey, he was warned and it was even prophesied that when he would come to Jerusalem, he would be bound. In spite of it, he came to Jerusalem. He was cautioned to hide. He wasn't going to hide. He was going to be a witness. And he boldly went right into the very most, you might call it the hot spot in town, the temple, and began to proclaim again Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah, risen again. Caused a riot almost in the temple. You might say, oh, there he is, meddling in other men's business. (laughs) No, he's not meddling in other men's business in this case. People thought he was. He was simply being a witness. He was being a witness. And um, there were some people who were convinced it was wrong, 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 wrong. He ends up almost getting killed by the Jews. The Romans, who fascinating, had Fortress Antonio right there next to the temple where they could see everything going on in the temple. And they saw what was going on, sent soldiers down, broke up the riot, and rescued Paul. Uh, Not exactly rescued. Arrested Paul which rescued him too. He goes in and he begins to be questioned. It's a long drug out process of how the different events take place. In fact, it it actually took several years, two years to get to where we're going to cover this morning. But in this process, he is accused and he is accused and he's brought before the Roman appointed governors. Hear this, that Paul's before Felix and he is accused. And if you look here at Acts chapter 24 and verse 5, You will find his accusers. Look what they say about him. Acts 24, verse 5. We have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also has gone about to profane the temple. 
whom we took and would have judged according to our law, but the chief captain Lysus came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands. Hmm. Do you hear all that? Tell me, was Paul guilty of any of that, yes or no? No. None of it. None of it. They were mad at him for the gospel and for his witness. They treated his witness as sedition. Felix obviously didn't believe him. It turns out that there was an attempt or a plot for Paul's life. He was transferred out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. There he remained imprisoned for two years. And finally, in two years, he was brought before Festus and Felix. And in the process of that, Paul shares his testimony. And he is presented, and there's something he says very interesting in the midst of all of this. If you look with me down at Acts 25 and verse 10. Then said Paul, he's speaking here to Festus and Felix, Roman authorities in that region. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. He appeals to the emperor, which he had the right of doing as a Roman citizen where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar." These two verses, this short little speech of Paul is really profound. He is establishing his innocence, pleading innocence. He is appealing to Caesar, the emperor, of which he had the right as a Roman citizen. But he is also acknowledging the legitimacy of the government to punish evildoers. I wonder if when Peter was writing First Peter, and he came to this passage here speaking of suffering for Christ that he didn't remember the fiery trial Paul went through, being arrested in Jerusalem, being brought before Felix, then Felix and Festus, a long drug-out period of time, and eventually all the way to Caesar in Rome. I wonder if Peter thought of that as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write 1 Peter 4, verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's business. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. I believe that is the sentiment of Paul here in, sec in Acts 25, 10, and 11. For notice what he says in verse 11. 
he says clearly to them, if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, what does he say? I refuse not to die. He is basically saying, I have a clear conscience, like Peter was talking about. I have done the will of God, and I am suffering for the will of God. But you examine me. Examine me. Am I suffering as a murderer? Am I suffering as a thief? Am I suffering as an evildoer? Am I suffering as one who's meddling in other men's business? Because if I am, Paul says, I submit to it. I refuse not to die. Lead me out, turn me over to the Jews, execute me. If I have done these things, if I am worthy of death, execute me. Which, by the way, is actually one of the profound New Testament evidences of the legitimacy of civil government and the civil government's authority for capital punishment. Pete Paul here is affirming that while he is affirming his good conscience and at the same time that he's not one suffering as Peter says none of us should. Paul set for us an example. And so when we come back to 1 Peter, if any, verse 14, be reproached for the name of Christ, as was Paul, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of. That was the case with the Jews. You heard what they were saying about Paul and of his God. But on your part, he is glorified. In David's situation, his sin gave cause for the enemies of God to blaspheme the name of Christ. Even, in fact, that was true in the life of Paul, too, before he was saved. Yet he talks of the mercy he found. I wonder if perhaps Paul didn't stand there before them in a sense, yielding to their judgment if they wanted to go back to extend the statute of limitations, so to speak, in his case. He was prepared to face it, clearly. Will judgment begin in the house of God? Will we, as the house of God, as his people, judge ourselves? If we do, it will cause us, motivate us to live a life holy unto God, which is what Peter's also about. As he quoted back in chapter 1, it is written, be ye holy as I am holy. We are to live this way in all manner of conversation in life. So as suffering and persecution looms and threatens us, it ought to motivate us to live righteously. He continues on here, and there's a lot here in verse 17 and 18 of paralleling and causing him again, the people in the midst of their suffering, to see those who are persecuting them. And, and the situation here of the divine and the eternal perspective is coming into play. You might be crying for justice, 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 and he establishes it basically here in these verses. He establishes it here. For if, scarcely, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? You may be struggling as one suffering for righteousness' sake and struggling with it. What if you're struggling because you're suffering for evil doing, wrong doing? 
the point of this all as it comes together is about obeying the gospel of God and how the righteous comes together. And how do we do all of this? We commit ourselves to the faithful creator. We may not be facing any ridicule or suffering today or tomorrow or the rest of this week. But I submit to you that every one of us need to have judgment begin in the house of God. Judgment is a discerning of what is right and what is wrong. And it needs to be true for us as a church family. It needs to be true in our personal lives. It needs to be true when no one sees. Judgment begins with us. What is right and what is wrong. And how much more that is true because we are people who are righteous. And how are we righteous? Because we have received the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith. And so we consider that, and it causes us to look at all of life, judging, beginning with us, of discerning what is right and what is wrong, knowing that God does judge evil. And we, as those having been clothed and redeemed and saved by the righteousness of Christ and his shed blood, ought to have a higher and a greater priority of discerning between what is right and what is wrong as we moment by moment commit ourselves to God, our faithful creator. He's the one who made us righteous. That's how we're saved. And it's scarcely described here. Why is it scarcely? Well, really, it's scarcely not because of anything God didn't do, but because it's us. Do we accept him? Have we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? It's a guarantee when we do. But it's the only way. That's the point. It's the only way to be made righteous is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he lives inside of us, and no matter what we face, as we judge between right and wrong, and as we do in the grace and spirit of God what is right... We have nothing to fear as we commit the keeping of our souls to him as we do well in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. It's all tied together from our salvation, faith in Christ, to our glorification in the presence of our creator. Let judgment begin at the house of God. Are we a part of the house of God? Are you a part of the house of God? Today you can become a part of the house of God. You become a part of the house of God by believing that Jesus died for your sins. That Jesus died for your sins. That he was buried and that he rose again. And that by you trusting, believing in him and in him alone, your sins are forgiven. You are clothed in his righteousness and you become a part of the house of God. And then we together, as experiencing this grace, we have judgment. We now have the Spirit of God who helps us to discern what is right and what is wrong. And no matter what we face as we do right, day by day, we commit ourselves to Him who is a faithful creator. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the creator 
We thank you that you suffered for us, leaving us an example. We thank you for your word, which is what you have given to help us in discerning what is right and wrong. Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit would move among us here now in this room, that judgment may begin in the house of God. May we be a people who recognize and understand sin is sin. Confess it and forsake it and find forgiveness under your blood that we may continually go forth looking to you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith as we commit ourselves and our souls to you. Lord, as we consider the fact that the evil, that the lost have no hope, may it motivate us to live godly lives in your strength and to be bold witnesses, bold witnesses to them that we may see them saved, we may see them righteous and a part of your house. We need you, Lord Jesus. We commit ourselves to you. I pray for each one here this morning who has not believed on you, who is not a part of your house, that today they would believe in you, receive the forgiveness of sin, and have hope of everlasting life that's only through you, Lord Jesus. And so now we commit ourselves to you as we pray. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.